Hello and welcome to the coolest kids. I am one of your hosts, Terrence Wiggins, joined by your other host, Brock Wilbur, and joined by our special guest, Crystal Reed. I, 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 I want to do the Terrence line this week. What? Christos, who are you? Why are you here? <laughs> um, I am a sad video game man. Um, hey, me too. And uh, I'm here because I want to talk about Deftones. Like a lot. <laughs> I, I actually I, I, I challenge your sad video game man status because uh, you... Uh, you get paid to be as sad as you are, and neither of us do. <laughs> <laughs> well, sometimes. <laughs> but Somet- when you do, you get paid a real human salary. I'm, I'm really jealous of your, of your, you coming into our country and stealing all of our good video game jobs. <laughs> do you know what? I've, I've come build, in. I don't have any wall. video game jobs yet. I do have one normal job, um, but I will, I will slowly accumulate more. I am following the popular viral tweet of becoming an immigrant job dragon, and I will store them all in my basement. Um, I I appreciate the idea of, of referring to to immigrants as dragons. It really gives you a sense of power and uh, and agency. In this it also makes me sound Welsh, which is <laughs> complicated. I don't know. It's gone pretty well. Um, I mean, I do worry that. Uh, I feel like I've every time I speak, I subconsciously activate the fandom part in the brain of every person around me that watches BBC dramas. Uh, it, this is this is absolutely true. I did we we have known each other for a couple of years now, and I was watching the BBC comedy Borderline, and I just kept texting Christos to be like, "Hey, do you say do you say bruv?" And he's like, "I do in, indeed say bruv." And I'd been sitting in the room with my wife, being like. You know what? I think Krista says bruv. I think I have like one bruv God. friend. I, God, I know fucking, I, I know he does in it. He's you're the in... most American white person. <laughs> <laughs> I think my foreign friend says says the thing they say it on the TV. It's a beautiful <laughs> word. It makes me happy every time I hear it. <laughs> it is uh, but... that just reminds uh, so that just reminds me of like white people being shocked that like I, I can swim or something. Because oh my of, god! Of stereotypes. <laughs> Why? Yeah, you never heard that stereotype? Like black people can't swim. Oh, I have. Yeah, I just, and like, yeah, I can't like, imagine somebody saying that to your. I mean, your face. Being a black teenager was a uh, was an experience, especially around all white people all the time. Uh, so you got that, and you got. Uh, I didn't know you could tan. I'm just like mean. Oh boy! I'm not like I'm not like pitch black, so the sun would obviously hit my skin yeah. in a certain way. <laughs> you have skin; it does function the same way. <laughs> if I didn't tan, then there would be a problem. Terrence's pigment is more of an event horizon; uh, it, it, it refracts <laughs> the concept of light. See, my 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 issue is as a as a Greek olive skinned person with a heavy beard. That already gets flagged a lot at airports. So I'm kind of like, I'm enjoying the hot weather. I like having my skin turn this wonderful caramel brown. But every every shade more of caramel brown this turns, I'm going to run into more problems in the Midwest. Because, <laughs> I mean, I grew, just like a, I grew up in London. Just to so, inside. like, yeah. So, like, the more, like, the moment I moved out of London, 
like I would get into like I got into an elevator once and there were there were two there were two old white ladies in the elevator and one of them just immediately got out. <laughs> <laughs> My friend looked at me, he was like, What happened? And like her friend was still in the elevator and she was like, Mary, where did you go? And they're like I was just kinda of like, I'll I'll explain what happened to you when we get out. But I'm, <laughs> I'm not having this conversation here. I was um, <laughs> I was too I was too dark a shade. For I've never uh, in the in the Pantone, I was not uh, I was not the right yeah the right shape. I've never heard of somebody being so racist that they left their friend behind. It no. was amazing. She just Samantha abandoned her. Now. Mary's gonna make a break for it. It was cold. Like she just <laughs> she just went, and her friend had no idea why because we were going down through the floors on this elevator of like a parking lot, like a multi-story like garage thing. So she got out on a floor where there were still cars, but not her car. She just <laughs> left. And her friend kind of called out after her, like, That's, why, would, why would she leave? And I'm just like, I, I, I don't know. It's kind of like that, that scene in, in Community with the restraining order, where it kind of becomes like a force field that you can use, except with racism. Um, yeah, I mean... That's probably the only benefit to racism is that sometimes people just don't talk to you. You're just like, good. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that and being able to um, fuck with people to their faces about the gentrification of uh, hummus is one of my favorite hobbies. Yeah. Uh, like trying to pull how racist somebody is out of them and just being like, yeah, uh-huh, uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> like basically. I was. I've done that before yep. where somebody has said something like. <laughs> terrible and i'm just like uh-huh sure uh-huh you gotta <laughs> talk to them about that i would i i am i am definitely guilty of doing the thing to someone where they were like so you've got you know you've got a greek background that's great i you know they're like oh I, you know i love the food i love like pita bread and i love kebabs and stuff and i just deadpanned instead and then i was like i cannot I cannot believe that you would say something like that to me. Like, just because of <laughs> who I am and where I'm from, you think this is appropriate? And they were like, and they were so good faith about it, but they were like, oh, God, I'm really sorry. And I was like, I'm just fucking with you. Like, this is the only benefit that we get, like, is, is I, this I conversation. You, you're hitting the hard P in PETA. Uh, you know, only we can do that. Yeah, yeah. we as a people don't use hard consonants but then again we as a people also have an alphabet with two o's in it so we're not batting a hundred as it is um uh so anyway we're we're talking about deftones white pony album Mm -hmm. uh which i i have never listened to all the way through uh until this morning um but my brother always loved the deftones um so I always would hear it like through my wall. Yeah. Uh, and it was even but like this album came out in what? 99? 2000. Uh, 2000. Yeah, just 2000. Uh, yeah. This album came out in 2000. And uh, this morning, I uh, earlier this week, I had just bought the new IDW Sonic the Hedgehog comic. Uh, and I was reading Sonic the Hedgehog while listening to Deftones. I was like, this is <laughs> this is like <laughs> what 2000 was. Um <laughs> Uh, but yeah, I had I had never listened to this album before, so I loaded it up on uh, on Google Music, and the first song that played was um, uh, what was that song, Brock? You just sent me. Oh, back to school. Back to school. Yes, oh, and that was the first song that played on the Google version, the Google Music version, 
Which it and, isn't even on the fucking album. <laughs> right. Uh, as I as I came to learn, uh, I don't like that song. <laughs> um, <laughs> so like, ugh. it's this it's this weird like rap rock <laughs> song, and I was just like, God, I hope this album isn't this. And then you get to the rest of the album, and it's not. I was like, Where did this song come from? Like, was this made for like a like the faculty or something? And no, and it just. I don't know. It, I, uh, it, I was such, very worried. It's such a brilliant album that's full of like this this dark atmospheric stuff. And like I I remember finding the album and being like, I knew I knew Deftones from their previous album, and I was like, this is more of that just like scream shit that I was just like, I have no time or patience for this. Uh, and like every every song on this has so many textures and layers, and they they're they're maybe the only fucking new metal band that added somebody to the band that was just doing like, is not the DJ, but does like samples and keyboards and stuff. And it just right. filled out the sonic palette in such an insane way. And this is one of those albums that like, I feel like it comes up a lot when, when I get to pick albums here on the show of like uh, that album that a band makes when they realize, Oh shit, we can't just keep screaming because we're adults now and we're going to burn out our throats. So like, uh, like the blood brothers crimes or something like that. Like it's, it's an album that still has screamy stuff on it, or like uh, Cursive's The Ugly Organ or Domestic, yeah. I suppose, when it's like, we've got we've to actually do some singy stuff. Uh, and instead of, of like uh, going the traditional route, I guess, uh, Chino, uh, the lead singer, just decided to digitally bathe his voice and all this stuff and to go into this falsetto sort of thing that actually be, becomes like, this this sort of mix of like ambient uh, Middle Eastern music uh, with with this sort of like sexual noir theme. It's it's such a brilliant album, and we can get into it. But uh, there's there's a final track on it that's a slow burn, and uh, and it has the same uh, chord progressions and lyrics as this song "Back to School," uh, and it's it's a slow burnout. And it's, it's just like staying alive at the end of the ugly organ, like all 22 minutes of that. But imagine right. if, if staying alive came to an end and then Cursive just did like a three minute power ballad version of the exact same song with the same lyrics. Just really like, let's kick out the jams, motherfucker. You're staying alive. Yeah, doing it now. <laughs> and then, and then uh, Tim Casher like sort of rapped over it. And then he kind of rapped over it. And then they do a music video which it's them doing the most rebellious thing that you can do, which is grabbing the microphone in a school and broadcasting over the PA, which of course causes children to riot, even though you're men in your thirties. Mm. Uh, <laughs> it, 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 but it, it was a song that I loved so much that I actually, uh, in high school while doing like a gorilla show with my band, we fucking did this song in our school. So that's how much I, I didn't get that. Maybe that wasn't cool, but, uh, it is it is amazing because it's not on the album and it's easily the biggest like song from this and it released like a year later and I've always wondered like did they get done and like ship the album and like somebody was like hold up did somebody we do was that like song wrong <laughs> somebody was like hey there's this band Lent Biscuit <laughs> uh can you sound like them for a song <laughs> so for 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 whatever this year's the faculty is which is exactly what i thought of it at the time like this is 
the cover of We Don't Need No Education or whatever, just like, yeah, we don't like teachers now. And you're like, you're again, men in your mid-30s. I, when's right. the last time you were in a public education system? It doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah, like I'm looking at I'm looking at the video, the video on silent right now. And also like this is the most this video came out in 2000 video because it's just like them like trashing a school and it does not have like the same mood as the rest of this album does. Yeah. Uh, is, and also like a you, smart album and that is not a smart song. So I'm yeah, glad it's not it's technically so, on it. <laughs> right. Um and it like you mentioned new metal and like yes they sort of fall into the same uh that that category but like the people that i knew list that like really listen to new metal and people who like the deftones were always like a different camp uh yeah like new, new metal kids are assholes because they listen to lip biscuit and fucking corn and shit like that and like deftones like it was like people who who are it was like musicians like people who made music and stuff yeah and that's what it always like felt this, like to me this ethnocentric sort of uh focus that i'd always like the first thing i knew about uh, uh the deftones was like not a band of white dudes uh and like right. uh them and at the drive-in i i suppose like and maybe one or two others always represented for me like i know that these aren't white bands existing in the whitest fucking family values tour world. Uh, and I was always <laughs> like, well, what do you, what do you do with that? And the answer is that you, you're either the fucking best at it or you do something so far uh, it, to, to one end of the spectrum that people are like, they just own that part of the spectrum. And that's, right. that's absolutely what the Deftones are. Right. Chris, Christos, tell me why, why this album, why did um, you choose it? Deftones are the one band growing up in London where I would go and see them every single time they played the city. Um, mm -hmm. And I think it was because it kind of lends to what you were saying before. It felt like a... Their music kind of felt like a pivot away from the rest of the new metal scene. Um, I've seen them described as everything from new metal to shoegaze. I feel like the reality is kind of... I would describe them as kind of like cyberpunk shoegaze metal, I guess, if I had to pick a thing. Yeah, yeah, um, definitely, yes. They're very... They're very strange. I mean, like, I I went through their lyrics uh, for White Pony earlier today, uh, and it's surprising how different some of those songs can sound when you're a kid to when you're an adult. But for me, I think... For me, I think tonally as a teenager that was also coming to terms with the fact that uh, at the time I had, I was undiagnosed depression and severe OCD and I didn't understand that about myself at the time, um, but music like that and like Audio Slave and things like that that were a bit kind of like a step apart, a bit slower, a bit deeper, um, and a bit more heart-wrenching, uh, I felt like fit me better as a kid that felt like he was kind of standing outside a house of all the other kids looking in on it. Um, right. The weird thing about Deftones, I think, as a band as well, is that they are hugely defined by whether or not Chino Moreno is currently doing drugs. Um, oh I have seen them multiple times, uh, when he has been clean and when he has been not, um, I do not recommend 
going to see them when he is on drugs. What the, um, what, what tours or albums are the are the not clean times? That's a good question, actually. Um, I feel like he definitely records at least relatively clean live. Uh-huh. It's a bit of a gamble. But um, but you're right about Back to School. It's definitely one of those. To me, it feels like very much a... Um, it's a very Kerrang! music videos warp tour song. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't really love the song. It just feels like it, it belongs somewhere else. But it's such a... like it, it, it is so interesting that they have such a smart album. And then there's this one just like four chord song that is it, it kicks out the jams but it, it it doesn't have any place next to something where they're like what if we just did a, a bunch of really weird stuff <laughs> yeah exactly it's um i think for me the most interesting thing about them um as a band as well is also that yes they are um they are not predominantly from a white uh, background. Um, they also had a lot of musicians that I think really defined their sound. I think my issue with some bands is that you could swap the guitarist or the drummer in and out and I wouldn't really notice. Um, but with some bands you can. Like Je- Deftones is defined by uh, Chi Chang, one of the members of the band. Didn't traditionally do vocals that much but was involved in a car accident about 10 years ago and he spent the best part of a decade in a coma and he passed away a few years ago um but it was they were the two of them kind of defined the soul of that band for me because they were both very quiet people and i think the the great thing about deftones vocals is that i find that they're often more defined by the silence than by the noise mm-hmm. um and that's why back to school i think feels like such a jarring change um, until you really think about it, I, I think it's easy to miss the fact that Back to School is constant, relentless vocals. Um, it definitely leans more towards the rap rock end of the spectrum, where like silence is bad. Whereas the majority <laughs> of Deftones is kind of being very comfortable with not having any lyrics and having very atmosphere, and it's why vocalists like Maynard fit into that album really well. I think is because Tool are another band who are very, very comfortable with like instrumental sections. I was actually listening to this, like actually sitting down and listening to this for the first time ever. I was just like, this kind of sounds like, like it, it very much has that feel of Tool in it, but I always felt that Tool was sort of pretentious. Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, and- I, I love Tool. I don't love the fandom that's my right yeah <laughs> like yeah and so like uh so tool like it sounds like tool without the pretension and then uh May, uh manor james keenan shows up and i was just <laughs> like oh, okay no that makes that makes perfect sense then <laughs> like a self-fulfilling prophecy um <laughs> i think also their lyrics um really kind of echoed a lot of the things that i was thinking especially as someone who was neuroatypical um Elite is uh, probably <laughs> my favorite Deftones track of them all. Um, and he has a bit in it where he says that um, he says you're into depression because it matches your eyes. Um, and that lyric <laughs> stuck with me from the first time I heard it until now. 
which is uh, an embarrassingly long time, Jesus Christ. <laughs> because, like, <laughs> roughly, like, a decade and a half at this point. But right. um, what I love about it is that a lot of his lyrics dealt with feeling like people around him were part of a scene that used feeling dark and being dark as an aesthetic rather than something that they were actually surviving. Um, right. Strangely, retrospectively, a lot of his lyrics also deal with his perception of women. And I feel like as a teenager, I didn't really pay too much attention to lyrics. And I suppose, you know, um, being a cis dude, I don't, I don't have to pay attention to his lyrics. So I don't want to, that's, that's, that was a privilege that I had, but looking back at it now, like he has, he has some very, I feel like some of those lyrics are very nice guy. <laughs> yeah. He's very like, you know, you just, I'm, I'm dark and I'm sad and we should be together, but we're not together. So I'm really sad and I'm going to write a song about it. And I'm like, motherfucker, you're in your, like your late twenties at this point. <laughs> like, can we not do this? <laughs> we, we, we get to play this game a lot upon revisiting stuff, but like, uh, Normally we revisit something and I find like something that I used to think was romantic or like definitely a song that I should put on a mix CD and share with a girl uh, is now like horrifyingly toxically masculine. Uh, and this one has not changed because I've always had the perception of it. But this is a very uh, serial killer album. It's a lot of like violence against women stuff and it's a lot like butterfly collector sort of things. And like I... I, I sort of tiptoed back into my re-listen here because I was like, is it is it still fun and interesting to me to listen to a violence against women concept album if it's being done as a character or is there just no place in my life to enjoy that sort of thing anymore because there's so many other things worth my time? <laughs> yeah, I mean, that was kind of my issue with I jumped back as an adult into listening to Limp Biscuit for a bit because I was like, I haven't heard this in a really long time. And I think Spotify have put together a playlist for me based on what it thinks my music tastes would have been when I was a teenager. Um, which was astonishingly accurate, and I felt a, I did feel a little called out by it. Um, but um, I dug I dug back into Limp Biscuit, and Limp Biscuit has that song um, "Eat You Alive." Yes. And the video and the lyrics for it, the no whole idea. thing is that he kidnaps. Sorry, a woman. Terrence, did you just say I don't? Know, I have no idea. Yep. I mean, so he's it's this Limp Biscuit song where he. He kidnaps a woman in the music video and he ties her to a chair and like he sings a song at her about like how he thinks she's beautiful but she doesn't want to be with him. So his solution to that is to kidnap her, tie her to a chair, and then tell her all the reasons that he's great. Which mm -hmm. like at the time when I was younger, it was structured as this kind of like last ditch desperate effort to secure the woman he loves and when you're like 13 and you're and you're you know male coded and and socialized to believe that that is romance you're like oh well that's so <laughs> bold and as an adult you're like that's a fucking felony um that's right. like you it, can't it also feels like the sort of like uh, like setup that like west borland said to him as a joke 
And then he, and then Fred Durst was like, "Hell yeah, I'll write that song." And Westport was like, "No, no, no, you, you, you missed. No, 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 no. I don't. I didn't mean to actually do it." <laughs> yeah, it's like occasionally, I feel like it does. They do definitely fall into a lot of the rap uh, tropes as a band. I find Limp Bizkit in terms of their their view of women and how women are part of the metal scene. Um, which is the ongoing problem of metal, which is that quite frequently, even now, um, women are seen as people who come to metal gigs, who do not do metal gigs, who are not right. on stage. <laughs> it's been this like really long, ongoing problem. But with Limp Bizkit... Oh, I was, was, was going to say, who's the most popular like female metal band? Kitty? Like, When was the last time we've had like a metal band? Ba- baby metal? Okay. Yeah. Yeah, and they were like, but, but we had to import that, so that's a whole different set of things. <laughs> right. Yeah, I was gonna say, like, baby metal just feels different. Like, not, not from the, like, different from the scene because metal guys hate them for stupid reasons. But I was gonna say, like, the only band I can think of that would come from this same scene that had like, it was like uh, Veruca Salt, and. Uh, and kitty and i can't believe you pulled kitty out of your ass like that that's that's like the first because <laughs> i i just knew because it was like it was all girls wasn't it yes yeah and uh i feel like there's somebody else i'm forgetting i mean there are older examples as well i mean you've got bands like flyleaf um yeah and paramore um and i felt like that actually that era of like metal I think started to go in the right direction, but yeah, fundamentally, I think my issue with my issue with that Limbiscuit song is is for the same reason I now kind of have an issue with some of the elements of um, like if you look at the track RX Queen on White Pony, um, it's literally an entire song about how he went through a breakup, but he refuses to stop stalking his ex. Um, but what's interesting about it is the way that he f- frames it, because he frames it, he frames himself as men are want to do, as the victim. So he's just like, "Well, right. I'm following you because I love you, and 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 you're not interested, and that hurts me, but I'm gonna keep going." And it's kind of like, and it feeds into that whole like it's very difficult to go back to albums that you heard as a kid. And then you're like, oh my god, all these lyrics are really, oh dear, <laughs> like, <laughs> um, it's 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 very strange. I mean, obviously, it's not it's not the lost profits problem, uh, no, where no. I've never <laughs> been able to listen to that problem. album ever again. Yeah, <laughs> oh I had, well, I mean, I had a lot of debates about that at the time because I was like, well, you know, about um the concept of the organic whole and structuralism and separating the art from the artist and death of the author and stuff like that. Um, but you know, <laughs> fundamentally, I just don't want to listen to music by a pedophile. I feel like that's a very, right. I feel like that's a very safe opinion to have, but <laughs> there's this very gray area in, um, uh, in this case where, you know, if I go forward through <laughs> the Deftones discography, this stuff appears less and less. Um, now, is that a product of society? Is that a product of Chino's opinions on this stuff changing? I'm not sure. I mean, Chino's always been 
an arrogant bastard. Like, he's always been very, very, very narcissistic and egotistical on stage, especially when he's on drugs. Um, <laughs> but I do believe that he's also capable of better things. I guess the question you need to ask yourself is that, you know, do we want to continue to give time to artists who are capable of great things but shitty now or do we want to give time to artists who are great now and right. not capable of shitty things um i think what but for me i just think they were always they were always a band that just felt like a step to the left of everything else and i think that my favorite bands looking back were always those bands i think um recently you guys did a podcast on an album that completely changed my life where you did now on uh oh it was the finch say hello to sunshine album mm -hmm. and yeah. that album was it was weird as fuck like that was a really strange left field album but it was good because it was weird and because it wasn't falling into all of the tropes like when i saw deftones at the electric ballroom in london um i waited all night to meet a friend who was going to be able to get us in early and he got us in early and i was really excited and i got to go right up to the barrier and it's quite an intimate venue um it's the same venue that progress wrestling is shot in now um and uh i was two meters away from all of them for the whole gig incredibly small stage and at one point they were playing, I'm not sure what track it was, but they flawlessly segued into an entire Deftones cover verse of um, Justin Timberlake's Sexy Back. And then at the end of it, they segued back into their song and they never mentioned it again. <laughs> and they never brought it up. And I just kind of remember being like, what did that? I like gaslit myself <laughs> on the way home. I was like, did that happen? <laughs> and then I read the Kerrang! review a few days later and they were like, yeah, he was just out of nowhere. He just started singing Justin Timberlake. And I was just like, yeah, he fucking did. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a very complicated album. I think, uh, it's I, one, of, I think one of the things that no one ever gets to talk about enough and it, it blows my mind. Cause, uh, I will hear the song in bars. I will hear the song in every, fifth trailer how is change in the house of flies such a big song when it's just such uh, a weird little <laughs> fucking track um, oh it's good I, I was gonna say like that was a song that i knew <laughs> off this album because, because it's been fucking everywhere it's in every movie it's in the end credits to every film they use it in like <laughs> they use it in like car commercials at this point like i'm just like it but it's it's barely even a song. It's now, like two chords. <laughs> I, I do want to flag the, the idea of using it in car commercials. Because, <laughs> like, I've seen some dark shit. Like, I like, you know, I'm still adjusting to American commercials in general. Um, especially, like, pharmaceutical commercials, which are not, <laughs> which are banned in the UK. You can't run pharmaceutical commercials like that. Oh, that um, sounds so nice which very strange to me because I was watching an ad for a uh, antidepressant the other night. It just came on. And what I wasn't prepared for when I moved here was the, the, the voiceover of like all the things that can go wrong with you. But it's like 75% of the voiceover in that ad. So the first bit was just like, <laughs> do you feel bad? A day's grey. Do you want to feel better? Blah blah blah. Like it's very sort of tropey kind of de description of depression. 
well, things don't need to be like this. And then almost immediately she segues into may cause suicidal ideation, depression, death, <laughs> blah, blah, blah. And it's like 75% of the ad is this person in the visual succeeding without depression while she reads out a laundry list of everything that could cause you to kill yourself. It was the weirdest, most discordant. So maybe from that perspective, change in the House of Flies could work. But... <laughs> Uh, so I'm looking, I looked up, uh, change in the house of flies on Wikipedia because I had the, the album open and this says in other media, the song appeared in several films and TV shows, including little Nikki, <laughs> dragon ball Z coolers, revenge, <laughs> queen of the damned alias, major crimes, wolf lake, the following American dad, and addition to the seventh season trailer for Dexter. Wow, I'm feeling incredibly American called out right now. Dad, <laughs> uh huh. I was more surprised about the Dragon Ball Z thing because that's somebody. Somebody made that choice. Yeah, like that's <laughs> not a Dragon Ball Z song, really, is it? Uh, yeah. I mean, I do like yeah, the idea of like maybe if it was just Vegeta sitting on his bed, like alone. <laughs> like if it was an AMV. Like yeah, like at like three in the morning, and everyone else in the house is asleep. And he's just sat uh, on the end of his bed and his hair isn't like gelled up and he's just kind of <laughs> sat there in the dark thinking about high grav training. Like maybe that <laughs> could work. Right, so I need, I need to, li I need to list for you the English dub soundtrack for Dragon Ball Z Cooler's Revenge. Cause <laughs> once again, it's a choice. There's Drowning Pool, Dust for Life, American Pearl, Breaking Point, Finger Eleven, disturbed deftones like those are the bands they used and that was certainly a choice somebody decided to make i feel what, like no, I breaking be... benjamin <laughs> well that's that would be the icing on the cake wouldn't it really <laughs> oh god like that's I, that i'm trying to see like i'm trying to see if they did this they did it again like whoever whoever at funimation was just like we need to have these uh these new metal and alternative metal bands, these songs for uh, for our Dragon Ball Z dub, <laughs> um, which like looking at the Japanese music, it's just like songs that were made for the movie, and then the American one is just like, no, we need to get shit in here. Like for uh, for the Lord Slug movie, they had uh, D Disturbed, Boy Hits Car, uh, More <laughs> Finger Eleven, Elite <laughs> is in here from this album. Um, it's just like I'm trying to see where this. It seems like it was only two movies in the early 2000s that they uh they did this. Uh, yeah, it was, it was just Lord Slug and Cooler's Revenge. There was like a like a four year window of new metal specifically. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, there was a huge intersection I think between like really melodramatic. OTT um, emotional metal before emo um, right and anime like it was right. inevitable because the melodrama of both syncs so well like if you look at like some of the fight scenes and um, like you could literally set the whole of attack on Titan to <laughs> down with the sickness like <laughs> all of it and that's yeah, and that that i mean wrong. that is me calling out attack on titan 
because that was yeah, I, I had to stop watching it like because they that that is a show very much where they were like well we could have individual characters or what we could do is we could get a bunch of people and we'll give each of them one emotion they all get to pick <laughs> one it's not allowed to be the same one but they all get to pick one and then that's their emotion for the whole show actually that makes me enjoy the show more it's hilarious referring to them as like sad or anger but it takes so long to get anywhere in that it show. It does take just, forever. See, yeah. It is the only anime I've Fucking ever watched, so it's... I'm, I'm goddamn <laughs> see, done with the show. My, that was my attempt to get sync myself back into it, was that and um, Sword Art Online, which is like the Ready Player One of MMO male entitlement fantasy. Um, and then... I, I don't know. I feel I do One Punch Man is where I'm at at the moment, um, and uh, I like I it specifically that. because it attacks a lot of the things I don't like about anime. You um, should uh, the the guy who created One Punch Man. He did another anime called Mob Psycho 100. If you haven't watched, I've that. been getting pushed towards that. Um, that and um, I'm very I'm knee deep in reading through uh, Dungeon Meshi, Delicious and Dungeon, which mm-hmm. is just a for those that don't know, is a is a manga about um, a group of adventurers in a dungeon who are broke and don't have any money for food, so they just start cooking all the monsters they kill. And it's kind of a combination of, good. like, a fancy adventure, comedy, and a cooking show. Um, <laughs> it's phenomenal. But it's that kind of weird stuff. I guess, I guess it's the same with music. Like, I found that, like, that era of... Like, the whole of new Metal was really good for bands who were completely defined by being nothing like anyone else. And those were the ones that always yeah. stuck. Like, Korn were defined by the seven-string Ibanez and the fact that Jonathan Davis is the most serial killer, non-serial killer that has ever existed. Um, and the and the fact that the the K was backwards or the R was yes. backwards. Yes. I was, one was, I was really lucky in that I went to see them at the download metal festival in i think it was 2006 and just before they came on um they announced that jonathan davis had hurt his throat and had been taken to hospital we were like shit mm-hmm. we're not going to get to see corn they were like but we are going to still do the show the rest of corn are going to play their instruments and a ton of new metal icons came on and did one song each as the no. vocalist so we got to no. see i got to see Corey taylor with Korn as a backing band, perform Freak on a Leash. I got to see Benji from Skindred uh, perform uh, Adidas. Like, it was the most amazing um, thing I've ever seen, and I couldn't believe it was happening at the time. Um, I know I know, this is a treasured memory for you, but huh? this is just making me think of all the white guys that I had to suffer through conversations with. <laughs> <laughs> Oh god! I mean, so what? I mean, th- that was the thing I loved about um, Skindred. Actually, is that um, they were um, they they define themselves as ragapunk. So they were kind of like a heavy punk metal band, um, mm-hmm. mostly from Wales. One from London, fronted by Benji, who um, who was not white, and. Uh, and his music was incredibly defined by that ragger approach um, and his mm-hmm. lyrics. And they are, I mean, if you ever get the chance to see them in the touring in the States, they're an absolutely incredible live band. And unlike anything I've ever seen before, um, we went to see them because they were supporting In Me. 
And we wanted to see Skindred, um, because I feel like if you're going to an in-me gig, I don't really feel like you should be going to see in-me. I think your excuse should be going to see literally anything else. Um, I can't speak for Terrence, but I feel like you're making up all these bands right now to fuck with us. I mean, I know who I don't know who uh, I don't know who Enemy is, but I know who Skindred is. Skindred are incredible. I was very fortunate in the um, in my adulthood because we followed them around. I watched them play when they were small. I watched them play uh, student union. Um, I watched them play like a small pub venue. Um, and then they got really big, and after they got really big, they came back to London, they played a venue called the Camden Barfly, which has a capacity of about 150 people. Um, it is mm-hmm. tiny, and they played an incredibly loud warm-up set before they went on their festival circuit. Um, but they were an incredibly good band, but they were, like the rest of them, they were just different. Like, there was them, there was System of a Down, um, incredibly different, hugely defined by um middle eastern culture and music and politics um right but with deftones i think what i respected about him while i have a lot of issues with his perception of women i really liked the way that he would go about writing lyrics about his own emotions none of it felt performative all of it felt very just very close to home and that he was just like i feel super fucking done and i want to get back into bed and i don't really understand what's going on and right i think for a lot of teenagers that was kind of very much a yeah i also feel that way um that's kind of why i've always vehemently defended that era of music as a lot of people were like yeah but lincoln park was so was so cheesy and blah 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 and i'm like yeah but if you were there at the time it was groundbreaking to have like to go from music that was about basically nothing to go to music that was about um depression and anxiety and surviving abuse like a huge part of slipknot and a reason that they had such a cult following because they constantly championed kids that were surviving abusive environments and like that's that's awesome and that doesn't really happen a lot in music that much at the moment so i kind of like that that whole thing is is important to me i think i think my biggest problem with going back to that era of music is not the music itself but like the people that i knew who loved that music and were uh, i mean like like you said there there were kids who went through stuff but they were not nice kids no uh (laughs) like they were they were real assholes and like Mm -hmm. (laughs) and like the just i don't know just the 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 culture surrounding like new metal and yes and stuff like that like even like if you like you couldn't listen to if you listen to any other music like they were all down your throat about why maynard james keenan is the who cares and yeah no actually this band is this thing and you're just like i just like this music over here yeah so it like it turns me it turned me even more off of it yeah uh like once because i like there were bands i listened like i i listened to that first lincoln park album i don't know how many times yeah but like (laughs) it was once i got a little bit older like listening to it so many times kind of wore me out on it and then like their lyrics never felt like they progressed. Yeah. So yeah, it it felt it felt like a person who constantly talked about 
something who constantly talked about being sad without like trying to move on to something different like trying to get help from themselves yeah um yeah i think that's very true which uh which like it kind of reflects in a lot of uh comedy um which was something (laughs) else that i that i grew up like around the same time was finding stuff because i didn't when i was a small child like up until middle school i didn't really listen to music or watch like comedy or any of that stuff so it was all like kind of together like where i started discovering stuff and so like i've been watching like the same comedians for 20 years now and like listening to Patton oswald's first album mm. and listen to his most recent stuff you can clearly see like every album is almost like this man learning more and more about himself yeah until he's like like the first album he's talking about how much he doesn't want kids and his last album is talking about him like trying to comfort his daughter because his wife died but like still making comedy out of that and i feel like a lot of like metal like just metal in general kind of doesn't progress so it's just like they're singing the same thing yeah about the same stuff yeah in the first from the first album to like the fifth album yeah i think one of their biggest problems is a scene as well um and I know that it's a very controversial topic, but, you know, fuck those people, quite frankly, is that the fact that it hasn't progressed uh, or evolved uh, enough, I think is actually also one of the reasons why it has an increasingly rampant white supremacy problem. Um, Oh, yeah. Like, the white supremacy, like, alt-right Nazi side of metal is a fucking problem. Like... It wasn't as widespread when I was a kid, um, and you know there were there were aspects of the metal scene that I respected that I didn't find in other scenes. Like I liked the fact that I could fall down at a gig and people would pick me up and make sure I was okay. Um, right. I liked the fact that you could be wearing, you know for example, an Iron Maiden t-shirt, and you would see a bunch of other people in Iron Maiden t-shirts, and you're all heading to a gig together, and you were immediately friends like that was right that was a nice side of it but like metal has always had a massive problem with racism and homophobia and just prejudice in general um but now you've got issues where you know there are major metal bands where oh god i can't remember which band it was but the vocalist uh, a couple of years ago uh threw up a hand and yelled white power during one of his sets and it opened up this whole debate about um i'm i'm quite frankly i find it like bizarre that it's a debate um mainly because i just find the concept of debating this stuff weird at all like people are like well you know it's like um if you saw an artsy would you really would you really be violent towards them and i'm like we have entire museum exhibits about this <laughs> like like i don't know like it's a complicated to- i mean like you know my my grandfather was a was a prisoner of war under the Nazis multiple times. Um, you know, right. so I I literally might not exist if it wasn't for <laughs> for bunching Nazis. Right. But the metal scene is very because you know one of the most common symbols is the Iron Cross, and obviously the Iron Cross is not solely associated with that, but it's it's a perception problem. Like they're very. You know, it's it's things like that. It's the rumors of uh, Lemmy having a huge collection of Nazi memorabilia. It's you know, it's it's 
is definitely a problem within that scene, and I think part of that is why it's not as welcoming to some people as it could be. Right. Is that you have to work like if you're not a to be frank straight cis white dude, you have to work so much fucking harder in the metal scene just to prove that you are allowed to be a part of it. Right. And my issue yeah. with that is that it is so much more prominent in the metal scene than it is anywhere else. Um, right. I don't see that issue as much in hip hop. I do sometimes see it in the reverse, but it's constructive. Like I see it in the reverse when we're talking about uh, Post Malone and other mm-hmm. white rappers and views on Second Amendment and views on cultural appropriation and privilege and you know benefiting from the work of uh poc as a white person and not paying it back into the community (laughs) you know the use of certain uh i would say uh twitch gameplay favored terminology currently is probably the most (laughs) easy way to put it um Uh but yeah so i think there are a lot of interesting conversations going on in other musical scenes but when we look back at metal it just kind of feels like it's stuck in the same place. And I think that was why I ended up moving on, was just that I hit a point where it was just kind of the same thing over and over and over again. And then I slipped into listening to, uh, via Deadmau5, I got massively into just electronic music in general, and then the Mm chiptune scene. Um, Now my entire universe is hip-hop and has been for years. Uh, for the most part um, mm. but what I've noticed is every musical scene I've travelled through the conversation seems to be more advanced and they seem to be more willing to like self-criticise and self-analyse right right. Terrence, yeah, what, what are your thoughts on this first album or this first listen through do you recommend this it to fr- people I mean I, yeah I mean musically I would definitely maybe cool. like because that's all I did was kind of just focused on the music because uh, a lot of lyrics from 2000 aren't particularly well written. Um, my, my friend had the best version of it when he quit Universal one day. He stole just like a whole bunch of CDs that he had. Uh, and it turns out that they were all like the instrumental versions of a bunch of these albums. So mm-hmm. his first time listening to this album was with none of Chino's vocals on it. And he just yeah. thought it was this really cool trip hop album. And then when he listened to the final thing, he's like, what's with this guy? doing all this shouting over the top of the pretty fun songs that i enjoyed and i was like you know what i think a lot of people would really like white white pony in that in that version as well yeah uh it like there was there was stuff in here that uh that you would definitely hear later in albums like in like later thrice albums and early me without you and uh even some juliana theory like later juliana theory stuff there's definitely it's definitely shares the same sort of makeup um with other later bands yeah um yep but yeah like like instrumentally like this i've really enjoyed this a lot yeah brock oh uh this is one of my all-time favorites but uh it also spawned my least favorite album of all time uh which is uh there was a short-lived mtv series called music in high places where they took bands and had them do acoustic sets in in weird places so they took the deftones and put them inside a volcano in Hawaii and had them do acoustic versions of their songs. And once you've made the choice to go into bathing your vocals in digital effects, 
you can't go back to doing acoustic sets. No. And just, it's the least, it's it's the shittiest sounding album I've ever seen, ever <laughs> heard. Uh, there, there's a live footage of all of it from them inside the volcano. And of yep. course, the DJ sample guy has <laughs> fuck all to do when he has an acoustic thing in the volcano. So sometimes <laughs> now when, when Darren's, Terrence threatens to shove somebody in a locker, I'm like, if they've really done a crime, I want to shove them into Deftones Volcano. On Deftones <laughs> Volcano uh, Island, that's so, your ultimate punishment. So, so you bring up a volcano, <laughs> and I was, I was looking at uh, I was looking at Chino's uh, Wikipedia page, and in 2016, there was a public, uh, the first ever public concert in the magma chamber of a volcano uh, near Reykjavik, Iceland. Called, I don't, I'm not even going to try to pronounce it. But it's on his Wikipedia page. So that's the second time he's played in a volcano. <laughs> Deftones, Deftones just live inside volcanoes. I feel like that's a very strange location to have the sensation of, oh, well, I'm back here again. Like, that's... <laughs> most people don't have that in a volcano. Um, but yeah, they are a very strange band acoustically. I have seen them perform well acoustically, but with in a studio, more of a studio alive environment with just one acoustic guitar. The problem with him is that his vocals work very well when it's because their distortion provides that atmosphere. And it's something Deftones are really good at is that, um, cause I, I, um, I come from a background as a, as a, as a vocalist and as a guitarist who played metal gigs in London. Um, and, distortion is definitely you know it's a go-to effect you grab a distortion pedal and you whack around you piss around with a gain on your amp and things you're like this sounds great but distortion that still carries melody is a skill um it's incredibly difficult um you can't just drop tune a guitar and expect everything to sound great um with that pedal on but what they were really good at is they played proper chords and they knew how those different strings sounded via the effects so and, when and they do it acoustically was it's primarily a drummer so he brought like a style of playing guitar to the guitar that most guitarists don't use <laughs> just just taps on it um but yeah i mean they, they they can be very good uh acoustically but that sounds that sounds fucking terrible i think it's his vocals I think if he was willing to change his vocal style, like that was something actually that Motorhead were really good at, was playing acoustic gigs. Because Lemmy knew how his voice sounded when he was playing Motorhead, and then if he was doing Motorhead acoustic, he shifted to more of like a kind of blues, rock, soulful set of vocals and i think if you're willing to adapt to an acoustic rendition of your stuff that's great but if you're just going to play your stuff acoustically <laughs> without mm-hmm. any of the effects i really don't want to hear him shout ace of spades over an acoustic guitar i have heard the acoustic version sounds great i strongly <laughs> recommend the the sort of bluesy acoustic version of ace of spades that they did because it was <laughs> fantastic um, and i think they did it for a commercial weirdly enough um I mean, that that is the thing about older metal bands, though. Like, what I noticed was I went back to the Download Festival in 2013, and we went to see a bunch of bands, and one of the bands we went to see was Europe. And they were an old, old metal band. I didn't know who the hell they were. And then they got to the final song, and they started playing the final countdown. 
buy <laughs> Europe. And I turned to my two friends and I was like, oh, <laughs> they're the final countdown guys. And they looked at me like, you fucking idiot. You've been here for like 60 minutes. Like, why are you just having this <laughs> epiphany now? Um, but the most incredible thing about them was that uh, uh, they sounded like a CD live. Like, mm-hmm. old metal bands are incredibly good at live sound quality. Some bands are not. And Deftones works very well because I think... The distortion is very good, but the best thing about Deftones, I think, is the rhythm. It's the rhythm and the atmosphere. Like, the drumming is phenomenal um, on White Pony. And I think it's one of the defining things about it. And I'm sure that makes a bunch of people very happy, because, you know, having been a person that also played drums, but also, you know, played gigs and stuff, like, I think being able to point to drums and be like, this is great, rather than the guitar or the vocals is is special like um there's a lot of use of snare in deftones <laughs> i think is very clever um because Aaron sneezed but i thought it was him <laughs> laughing at you like snare, <laughs> fuck off you're just like how nerdy is this getting no i mean it's it sounds really weird but like sometimes i feel like oh i'm not sure which track it is on white pony but there's there's one particular track where there's a very clever use of what sounds like very overproduced, possibly an electronic snare at a studio level. Um, but it's almost used as like punctuation. Um, and it keeps time and rhythm, but it's only when Chino is not doing vocals. And it's it's really cool. Um, I think that was just kind of why I, why I grew to like them, is they were cool, but they were cool because they weren't trying to be. Like, right, they did their own thing instead of yeah, to and that's kind of why them. I like a lot of sort of more shoegazy stuff is that right. That's kind of the element of that whole genre is that you're not really there for 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 narcissism. Like, don't get me wrong, I think you should be able to be like super proud of the music you do, and I think you should be able to strut around on stage and feel great about it. But. I do have a lot of respect for, you know, the guitarist that will come on stage at a gig and will almost never look up at the crowd. It's super awkward and really quiet, but is incredibly talented. Um, Because that's craft and passion without the sort of stage show stuff. And I think sometimes that can be very interesting to watch. If the entire band is like that, not so much. But, you know, Chino is a very lively entertainer uh fortunately when he's on drugs he's also prone to going on like five to ten minute rants between songs about harry styles and top shop um i would leave i was really <laughs> freaked out by that but, i mean it wasn't the biggest gap i've seen in the set the best gap i've seen in the set was i went to see skrillex play a student union and the sound guy was so bad that at one point benji stopped the entire set spent two solid minutes yelling at the sound guy through the mic and then they all stormed off for 10 minutes and then came back because <laughs> he was so pissed um i mean i can understand yeah like i think if you're not you know i have a ton of respect for the people behind the decks at uh at gigs because they are what make gigs sound good there's a 50 50 combination of production and artistry but if you're really doing a bad job and you're not listening then yeah i think you're 
you know, you're just going to end up giving a shitty performance. And I think that was the problem with Deftones is that I would go to see them when he was sober and they, it would just be like an almost spiritual experience. Like they were so passionate and soulful. And, right. And I think what the, the best thing about gigs like that, and I think the best thing about that era of music in general, like I went to see my chemical romance at one point, um mm-hmm. during i think a phase of new metal fashion that i would sooner forget about um <laughs> that phase of like black shirts and red ties and stuff um mm-hmm, mm-hmm. i i listened to a tray you i know what you're talking oh, about oh yeah i i had i bought a red tie <laughs> with my chemical romance at that gig <laughs> I was gonna say I had a, I had a black shirt and a red tie. So I know it was the standard uniform of the sort of mid two thousands new metal fuckboy. I think mm-hmm. was that mm-hmm. yeah. Um, but you know they were like you know like Deftones, uh, Mike and were just very um, they're a very openly emotional band. Um, Right. And they weren't ashamed of it. And I think for that reason, a lot of people felt very safe at their gigs. And I think that's why I liked gigs by Deftones, is that you found a lot of people who connected with that music on a very deep emotional level, who were there to feel that emotion live with the people that made it. Um, And there was an atmosphere to those gigs that I liked, and it felt safe. And it felt like, you know, you were safe to be very emotional about what you were hearing. And that was cool. Um, Mike and were great at that. You know, we all like wrapped our arms around each other's so- our shoulders. We sung along to ballads. You know, we ball danced. We cried. Um, I remember Gerard Way actually stopping the set at one point, uh, and he gave a sort of he talked for a few minutes to the crowd that was mostly teenagers, a little younger than us. This was when the emo scene was really taking off, and he. Uh, he spoke to them about depression and about self-harm and about seeking help and things. And it was for a guy that was getting shit on by the rest of the metal scene as a poser. It was one of the most genuine things I've ever seen. And it was incredibly positive mental health discourse. Um, yeah. And I felt like, I feel like some of those bands never get credit for that. And that usually that, I think that's the thing that pisses me off is when people were just kind of like, Oh yeah, but Deftones are all like, all like feelings, and I'm so sad, and all the guitars really that, slow, yeah. and you know, blah blah blah. And I'm just kind of, well, you know, some of that stuff could be honest, and you know, it may not always fit your emotional state, or it may not always fit who you were. But for some people, that's you know, like I make, uh, I make video games about uh, mental health and my emotions. I make a lot of autobiographical stuff. And a lot of gamers don't like that. They don't want to play that stuff. And that's okay. Um, but, you know, to some people, I've had people come up to me and just be like, well, that, you know, hearing you talk about this stuff or having you make these games was was life-changing for me. You know, I realized I wasn't alone with my mental health or I realized that, um, you know, it was okay to come out to my family about being uh, queer regardless of the consequences like you know it's it's one of those like making art from a really raw emotional place you're taking like a huge risk in getting the shit kicked out of you in public um and i had that experience where i was like i was listening to a podcast where people were talking about my work 
and they were talking about a game I made about getting kicked out of the house by my mum because I came out as queer, which is a thing that happened. Um, and I made a game about it. And uh, I remember they were talking about it. They're all laughing in that way that people laugh about emo bands. You know, that kind of like, oh, this is this sounds really dramatic. And they were like, oh, yeah, it's not a very good functional game, blah, blah, blah. And then he started, the guy talking started to describe like what it was about. Uh, what it meant and things and all of the laughter on the podcast stopped and they mm. went really quiet <laughs> for a few minutes and they just listened and then they talked about it and it's it's that same thing with you know with with deftones with tool with my chemical romances you know some of the lyrics are bad <laughs> some of the right. lyrics are unabashedly cheesy uh but some of them i think came at the right time to the right people who right. I think the the biggest thing I've learned through my work is that if you say the right things to enough people, eventually you will cause someone to realize that they are not the only person that feels that way. And that's a really important thing, I think, with art. Is to Christos, yeah. where can people see do see you do feelings online and support your work? Oh. Uh Christ, I don't even know anymore. Uh, lots What's of places. Twitter? Uh, my Twitter is failed. Name, name a name a Twitter. Yeah. Go to a website. Do you have a itch.io? I do. I Twitter? have a failnot.com, which I believe still goes to failnot.itch.io, um, oh, where I have that. where I have my games. Um, it does not. It does not. It fails. No, well, that's my DNS. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> uh, itch.io is where most of my games live um, and then if you search my actual name on YouTube you'll find like I think it's like 7-8 talks that I've done about different aspects of emotions and mental health and video game design and things like that um, but what was cool for me was that like, like I have a kid who has mental health stuff um, and I have a kid who's very in touch with herself and who she wants to be and how she feels about things um and it's it's very hard to i think sometimes get kids and i think you can feel this sometimes as older musicians playing to younger audiences of how do i connect with people like that and sometimes you can just connect through art like my kid can play my games to understand more about me or like we were in a barnes and noble recently and um I noticed a book on the shelf and I was just like, oh, I know this book. So I picked it up and I flipped it to a certain page and I gave it to her and I was like, look at that. And it was a book about video games written by Simon Parkin. And it has like a mm -hmm. three page interview with me in it about my, my work. Um, and she was just like, oh, wow. And she got to read this interview about how, you know, you can use, you can use uh, art to talk about your feelings without necessarily having to say the words directly and i think that's what right. deftones does and i think that's why i spoke about the silence so much is that his his lyrics are very minimal it's kind of like sometimes it feels like he's just sort of bringing up a topic like writing it on a whiteboard or something and then like he'll just let it sit in like reverberating chords and drums and it's that it reminds me of all the times where, like, I was sad and stuff wasn't happening. 
and you see it in his videos, like changing the house of flies. I think he's just like sitting in the corner of a hotel room. And I think it's those like, uh, I think it's music that helps you to deal with the, with the quiet moments. Mm-hmm. I think are sometimes uh, uh, a lot more important than music that helps you enjoy the loud ones. Me and Brock always have this sort of uh, uh, saying about bands, like especially from this era of saying things that you that you wrote down to yourself, and saying things that you wrote as like a threat to a girl. Yes, because yeah, and so and so this very much kind of feels a lot of it feels like things that he wrote to himself instead of a a note that he slipped in some girl's locker yeah it's um yeah a lot of it feels so that's the complicated thing about it is a lot of it feels introspective i mean obviously there's a debate to be had about you know is this about a real person if it's about a real person you know about the issues of taking your relationship and putting it into art and where the boundaries are for that things like that but yeah i think you're right like some of it and some of it displays a lot of emotional vulnerability that wasn't really present in a lot in men in metal at the time Mm -hmm. and i think that was very important like you know a lot of people used to take the piss uh of uh chester bennington um and when he died recently like i was not okay for like a while because when I was a teenager and I picked up Hybrid Theory, you know, um, Linkin Park's debut album, I was suddenly introduced to a guy who looked tough and looked strong, but and sang strong and tough, but sang about not feeling that way, um, and that's that's an important lesson for um, for men, I think like i've i've written before uh about uh male suicide rates and toxic masculinity and things and the biggest thing that kills us is silence and i think having music or art that can encourage you like deftones does to be more in touch with how you're feeling and maybe to talk to people about it is important right and i feel like sometimes this, that was the best thing about the emo era and mixtapes was that sometimes I think especially for either very awkward teenagers or maybe more specifically for teenage boys sometimes it was easier just to put a track list together than it was to say I love you or than it was to say that I feel (laughs) depressed it was just easier Uh, because you could step back and let a lot of the men who said those things that you looked up to in music say it for you right uh, I, w- I want to end this podcast by saying, hey, did you guys know that P.O.D. is still together? <laughs> I did not. Uh, you, were talking about the, you were talking about the Download Festival, and I was just like, I wonder who played that. And I got to looking at it, and it was like, P.O.D. played one day. I was like, are they still together? And they're, <laughs> they're still a band. They're great. Uh, we are, we are the youth of a nation, but we all have mortgages now. Like, it's been a while. <laughs> it's kind of been a while. They, they had an album come out. Towner. <laughs> they had an album come out in 2015. Wow. And they apparently debuted a new song in 2017 and uh, had a had a fall tour to promote that one song, I guess. There are some bands um, that are coming back now as well that I'm really glad are coming back. To. Like System of a Down are coming back. 
That's exciting. Oh, thank God. Like, no. like sister. No. I feel like there are a lot of political bands I don't need back. I don't need Rage Against the Machine back. Like, not at all. Um, I actually thought I was listening to. Um, do you remember? Uh, I don't know if you're a, a Run the Jewels fan, but yeah. Um, a massive Run the Jewels fan, on, and when Zach De La Rocha yeah, on, turned up, he's on that one song. Yeah. yeah, when he turned up on that track, I was at first I was like, "Fuck yeah, Zach De La Rocha!" And then I kind of, and then he got on it and he started rapping, and I was just like, "God, you sound like an idiot compared to these two. <laughs> like, if you sound, yeah, I feel like even within Run the Jewels, if you sound less woke than LP and you're Zach De La Rocha, there's a fucking problem." <laughs> Like yeah, l- yeah. Because that's why we've well, got to put him in Deftones volcano, shove him <laughs> into the volcano. Uh, there. I mean, you could also listen to uh, there's a what is that? It's like this. It's like a spinoff band of Rage Against the Machine. Yes, that Zach De La Roche is not in Prophets of Rage. Yes, uh, that sounds awful. They yeah, <laughs> it's very heavy rap rock. I mean, to give you an idea, I shazammed yeah. that and found out about them while I was in a hot topic. <laughs> So I just want to put that context together for you to give you a better idea. Oh, I mean, the best thing Rage Against the Machine ever did was Zach De La Rocha was Audio Slave. Like, nothing will ever top and, that. And that also ended in a sad story. Uh, it did also end in a sad story. Uh, we, have, we, have to end the show. we have to end the show before every, every topic we end up in is just like, and that person's dead now. Uh, that's that's uh, very true. We should we should. Christus, do you have anything else to share? Do you are you working on anything that you would like to share? Um, yes, I am currently uh, working on a video game about obsessive compulsive disorder. Mm-hmm. I've been working on it on and off for a while, <laughs> but due to like work and immigration processes being very long and difficult didn't you didn't you really recently move yeah i took it i ended up just not really doing anything for like a for a year and a half um i don't don't blame you america sucks (laughs) it's 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 been an interesting time to move to the states that is my default (laughs) response to lyft drivers who ask about my accent um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I was I was gonna say about your accent. This is the smartest the show has ever sounded. So, <laughs> well, you say yeah. this. I mean, like, obviously, because partially I'm on a podcast, but also partially because I'm talking to Americans. Um, I enunciate pretty well, but the more relaxed I get, the more yeah. London my accent gets. <laughs> like. To hey, the point where the I have like a excited about the British accent. Now, well, I mean, not... it's to me like my 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 scale is basically like Martin Freeman to like a fable like, NPC. Well, I huh? sa- I sound more huh? like I huh? guess like John Boyega maybe would be my kind of thing. <laughs> He's South London, I'm North London, so we right. do sound a little yeah. different. But give yeah. me your treasure, bruv. Well, yeah, well, that was the best thing about seeing the Star Wars premiere and seeing him on the red carpet was not only was he like a POC lead for fucking Star Wars, but he opened Which his I'm mouth and gave an interview and I was like, whole, like I got teary because I was like, holy shit, he sounds like we do. Like, that was a really big thing for me. I was just like... And he, and he, and he wasn't a villain in the movie. Yeah, and he has a really specific South London accent, so I know the area yeah. of London I, he came from. And from his accent alone, I know the kind of shit that he went through in addition to everything else to get to the point of being in Star Wars, and that was really big. 
Um, that the the whole the whole accent thing in in England, like where it's like very specific to each point, <laughs> yeah, is kind of weird because the part of Virginia I live at, like everything is named after something in England. Like I live in Norfolk. Yeah. And, what the. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah that that's it, it is weirding me out that happens a lot in indiana <laughs> where like and so uh yeah there's well i was gonna say there's in our city like our city is there's norfolk and then there the hampton roads is like a segment called ham is hampton roads it's seven different cities and uh and like each city basically has its own accent huh and it's and they're not far away from each other and like so, like Virginia Beach, obviously. I was like, I, there's going to be a lot of like sort of beach accents, and then like there's there's like Norfolk and Chesapeake are like the cities, so you get like actual like kind of like city-ish accents. Right. It's real weird. It is. It's it is weird. weird. I mean, I've enjoyed listening to all the different accents. Like my wife is uh, born and raised in uh, Indiana, um, mm-hmm. but her family are from Kentucky, and occasionally her accent will slip into like more mm-hmm. of a southern direction and i fucking love that shit like <laughs> um um because i i'd like every time she does that i'll point it out i'm like yeah <laughs> the accent is back i was gonna say if i'm a, if i'm around southern people for like more than a day yeah it'll start slipping through so. yeah my accent goes a bit weird when i'm around because i was born in scotland um and i bro- moved bro- when bro- i was young even? but my my accent starts to come back when I'm around Scottish people for long enough, but here it's Brock, just. Do you have anything? Mm-hmm. Let's say Brock. Huh? You still there? Do you yeah. have any like sort of accent or? Uh, a bunch of my friends went to Mexico senior year of high school, and in uh-huh. Mexico they were talking, and somebody's like, "You're from Kansas," and they're like, "Why is that? How could you tell?" And they're like, "Oh, you just say fuck all the fucking time." <laughs> uh, so I've always just considered that to be my fucking accent. See, is that a Kansas? <laughs> thing i do not know it's it's just a line <laughs> i've had to teach myself definitely to swear less in the states because i swear at like a scottish level and that's oh yeah oh, on a professional that's level. a lot and there are a lot of words you can't use here because they're a lot worse here than they are at home um, oh yeah yeah there's there is a certain word that i've heard a lot of uh a lot of people from over yes uh i mean in scotland <laughs> see you next tuesday is being completely reclaimed in the same way it has been in australia primarily because yeah. to them it just never meant that word never meant that in the first place um yeah and it's but there's also scots which is a completely different dialect in and of itself yeah. um but we're almost at an hour and a half. We need to end the show. <laughs> uh, Christos, thank you so much for You're, showing up to our show to talk about this album I've never heard. You are very welcome. I'm very impressed that we got through talking about an album with a track on it called Knife Party and didn't end up talking about cults. I'm very impressed. <laughs> very satisfied by that. Uh, and and uh, Brock, do you have anything else to add? At Brock Wilbur. Bye. <laughs> What's your other podcast? No one knows. We've gone. We've gone too far. <laughs> All right. Uh, yeah, I'm at the Black Nerd. Uh, uh, we are the coolest kids, and we take what we can get. Thank you guys so much for listening. Please rate, Bye, review, everybody. and tell Terrence he's great. Buddy.